You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Early in World War II, the British suffered a humiliating defeat that publicly exposed their Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, and his government as being incompetent and worthy of removal from office. So Parliament assembled to debate making a change. And at the critical moment, one of the Prime Minister's closest allies stood up and quoted some famous words to him. You have sat here too long for any good you've been doing. Depart, I say. And let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. It was a devastating blow. The words were tough, but necessary. And they sealed the prime minister's fate, bringing Churchill to power, and the rest was history. It's very easy in our society, and especially in the church today, where we have so idolized niceness, to forget that sometimes hard words are necessary. Titus 1 tells us sometimes sharp rebuke is necessary. And as we come to Matthew's gospel today, we find Jesus saying some very hard things against some very false religious leaders. But they were true things that needed to be said. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 23. Today we're going to see what these words were and why they were significant, not just to those Jesus was condemning, but also to the people who were listening. So to that end, we'll see three points this morning. First, we're going to see where Jesus actually condemns some false religious leaders. Second, Jesus contrasts these false religious leaders with his intention for his disciples. And then third, Jesus addresses the unbelieving crowds who have been corrupted by these false religious leaders. We begin with our first point, and I warn you, it is a very long point, in which Jesus condemns some false religious leaders. And as we begin this morning, we are once more in the temple in Jerusalem. And this great debate has just ended in which Jesus was challenged by representatives of every major group within first century Judaism. And now the debate is over and its result is clear. Jesus has triumphed over all challengers. And his victory is so comprehensive that the final words of chapter 22 tell us, from that day... No one dared to ask him any more questions. None of the Jewish religious elites wanted to obey Jesus anymore because now they definitely know they will lose. Now you'd think that realization might spark some self-reflection in Jesus' opponents. Maybe they would think, hey, Jesus seems to know a lot more than we do. Maybe we ought to listen to him. But no, they won't humble themselves before Jesus. Instead, they just walk away. Now understand that their retreat is not the end of their opposition to Jesus. No, they're just transitioning to a new strategy. If they can't discredit Jesus in open debate, they will get rid of him a different way. They will murder him. But as these opponents withdraw, who is now left at this scene? Well, we've got Jesus and his disciples and the crowds. Because back before the debate began, Jesus had been teaching the crowds. And you know, as the 
lesson turned into a debate, more and more people would want to come see Jesus versus all these wise people, right? But now the debate's over, and Jesus turns to those who are left, to the disciples and the crowds, and he begins to speak to them about what they've just seen. And he focuses on two of the groups of his opponents that he's just taken down, the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees were the religious-slash-political party that was most popular with the common people in the first century. Because people said, oh, the Pharisees, they're so holy. They're so pious. Their reputation we're about to see was false. The scribes were popular Bible teachers who generally followed the Pharisees' theology. And as Jesus begins to speak about this debate that has just happened and these opponents that he's just taken down, it's not a surprise that he only focuses on the Pharisees and the scribes. Because these two groups have been his primary antagonists through his entire ministry. And in fact, in the debate that just ended, in five of the rounds of the debate, the Pharisees are the group that comes at Jesus three times. So we can see why they and the scribes are at the forefront of Jesus' mind now as he begins to speak. And what Jesus says is that the Pharisees and the scribes are spiritually blind, hypocritical frauds. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. This is the first of ten different charges Jesus is going to make against these guys in short succession. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Now we might be surprised that Jesus tells the crowds to obey the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Because very often in this book, Jesus has rejected the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. But remember in chapter 5, Jesus warns against a whole lot of false perspectives about anger and lust and easy divorce and dishonesty and revenge. Each time, he's arguing against the view of the Pharisees. Or in chapter 15, Jesus rejects the Pharisaic doctrine of defilement. In chapter 16, he calls their teaching leaven. It's a growing, corrupting, sinful influence. So why now does Jesus tell the crowds, listen to their teaching? Because most of the time in this book, when Jesus is taking down the Pharisees' teaching, he's rejecting their man-made traditions, rules they made up that were not in the Scriptures. Jesus didn't accept those rules. But now Jesus is not talking about the man-made rules of the Pharisees. Now Jesus is talking about when the Pharisees and scribes sit on Moses' seat. Probably a reference to when they were teaching the law, like in the synagogue, reading the scripture and giving its interpretation. And apparently when the Pharisees and scribes stuck to the text, when they didn't go off preaching their own made-up junk, most of what they said was accurate. And so Jesus says, obey the Pharisees and scribes when they teach the Bible. Because even though they are false and corrupt teachers, if they happen to accurately say what God's word says, they've got to be obeyed. Not in their false, made-up junk, but only the things that really reflect God's word. Because God's word is still authoritative, even if it's found on the lips of an unbeliever or even a false teacher. But while Jesus tells the crowds to listen to the biblical instruction of the scribes and Pharisees, he says, Do not imitate their conduct, because what they preach 
They don't practice. And this is the first condemnation Jesus brings against them. They are hypocrites. They are actors who pretend to a righteousness they don't really have. Oh, they may teach the Bible accurately, but they make no effort to live in line with it. They don't honor God as their ruler. They don't submit their lives to his word. Second, Jesus says, look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Pharisees' teaching is oppressive. It crushes people under its impossible weight. Because it teaches that God gives his favor only to obedient Jews. That's works righteousness. Trying to earn our salvation by obedience. And not only do they say, you've got to obey the Old Testament law to get God's favor. They say, you've got to obey our made-up rules. And not only do they crush their followers with works righteousness, but they are false shepherds. As their followers struggle through this impossible quest to earn God's favor by their conduct, the Pharisees don't offer their followers any help or comfort or consolation. The whole thing is all burden and no relief, which is totally different than Jesus. Because in chapter 11, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's not because the Christian life is easy. We've seen in this book, it's hard, it's demanding, it will get us enemies. But you know, even though the Christian life's tough, Jesus is an ever-present figure of help in our lives. He is a constant source of hope and help and encouragement. He empowers us to continue to follow and obey Him by His Spirit. But the Pharisees only oppress their followers and don't help them. Third, Jesus says, look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. The Pharisees' main concern was not God's approval but man's. So they deliberately cultivated a reputation for godliness by doing godly deeds, what seemed to be godly deeds, but always in public. So other people would see them and, oh, you're so spiritual. Saw examples of this back in chapter 6. When they pray, they do it on the street corner so everybody can see them. When they gave to the poor, they blew trumpets so everybody would look. We find more examples here. Phylacteries were leather boxes that would contain little pieces of paper that had the scriptures written on them. Observant Jews wear them even today on their forehead or their left hand. The Pharisees made theirs big and noticeable so everybody would see them. The law commanded Jewish men to wear fringes or tassels on their garments. The Pharisees made theirs extra long so everybody would see how compliant they were. And you know, all this attention-seeking succeeded. They often got the seat of honor at the banquets. People would come up to them and say, Rabbi, my teacher, and treat them as though they had some kind of special relationship with God. They loved that. But the Pharisees were so interested in how other people saw them, they forgot what Jesus said in Matthew 6. God won't honor deeds that are only done to impress people. And they forgot that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He isn't fooled by the show of holiness that we put on for other people. 
Because he sees who we are when nobody else is around. He sees the secret things that are in our hearts. And what's worse for us, Romans 2.16 says, On that day, the last day, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes don't have to wait until the end to have the secrets of their hearts exposed and condemned because now Jesus does it right in front of the crowds. Drop down to verse 13. From verse 13 through verse 36 now, Jesus acts as a judge. And he enters a verdict of condemnation against the Pharisees and scribes. And he does so in seven statements which each begin with the word, Woe! And the word woe here, it's not like what you say to a horse. This is like judgment. Jesus has found the Pharisees and scribes guilty, and he now pronounces a terrible sentence upon them. And we see this in Jesus' fourth denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is the first woe. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus says, you've closed the door to God's kingdom. You've denied it to yourselves and to others, to their followers. One commentary says, they're not just wrong, but contagiously wrong. We're going to see that's painfully true in just a few minutes. But what exactly is Jesus saying here? How have they shut the door to the kingdom? Because they're keeping people far from God. Because they have opposed Jesus, who is the only one that can reconcile God and man. Three times in this book, in chapters 9 and 12 and 21, we read that the crowds were so in awe of Jesus, they start wondering aloud, could he be the Messiah? And immediately, in each case, a Pharisee or a scribe stands up and angrily blasphemes Jesus to shut it down to dissuade the crowds from believing. They have kept people from salvation. So woe is upon them. Next, look at verse 15. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. During this time, the Pharisees expended great effort to win converts. But what were they winning them to? A Judaism without Jesus. A faith not based on the scriptures, but their own man-made rules. There's no value in that. You know today, Mormon missionaries make great efforts to win converts. Muslims make great efforts to win converts. And what is the value of their efforts? What does it produce? More lost souls. It's the same thing here. And Jesus says the outcome of these Pharisees' efforts is the converts who are produced become even more fanatical about the Pharisees' false doctrine than the Pharisees were. They become even worse than the people who persecuted Christ, twice as wicked, twice as deserving of condemnation. So woe is upon the Pharisees and scribes who converted them. Next, Jesus says, look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. 
For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You say, what in the world is this about? The Pharisees invented this really complex system of rules related to swearing oaths and vows. I'm not going to go into detail about this here because we preached a whole sermon about it back in chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. And if you want more detail here, go back and listen to that sermon on the website. But what happened was these rules related to taking oaths and vows were so complex that most ordinary people just trying to transact business wouldn't know when an oath or a promise or a contract was binding or not. And, of course, this led to abuse because clever people figured out safe combinations of words that would protect them from legal trouble and allow them to trick others into giving them money. And the Pharisee system protected and promoted this dishonest exploitation. And Jesus says, this is wickedness. God is not okay with clever word games and rhetorical sleight of hand to justify dishonesty. Back at chapter 5, Jesus says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. God wants plain speaking and honesty. And the Pharisees and scribes who think God is okay with these word games and abuse, they are spiritually blind. They don't know God, and anyone who follows them is going to wind up in ruin. So woe is upon the Pharisees and scribes. Next, Jesus says, look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Today we use the word tithe often to describe money given to the church. That's inaccurate because the word tithe literally means to pay a tenth. And the New Testament requires no particular percentage of our income. Rather, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Today we're not bound to give a tenth. But under the Old Testament law, things were different. The ancient Israelites were required to tithe. And in fact, they weren't just to tithe once. Each year they had to pay two distinct tithes. And every third year they had to pay a third tithe. Now one of the tithes the Israelites kept annually in Deuteronomy 14.22 was about tithing all the yield of your seed. And the Pharisees understood this to require tithing of plant life that they owned. Even down to the most micro level. Even to the level of garden herbs used in cooking. We still cook today with mint and dill and cumin. And Jesus doesn't say they shouldn't. After all, this command to tithe plants was biblical. That's not his objection here. But Jesus does have an objection, which is, why do you care about tithing on such a micro level while neglecting more significant issues? Not every part of the Old Testament law was equal in weight. Now, I'm not saying that there were commands God cared about and commands he didn't. No, if God commanded it, he did care about it. But he didn't care about every command equally, 
And we know that because Jesus just said a few verses earlier, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the question here really is, how important is it to God that you tithe your garden herbs if you don't love him? Or if you don't love other people? The Pharisees have scrupulously observed the least significant commandments to the nth degree. But they have ignored the greater commands in God's estimation. Jesus says they have ignored justice and mercy and faithfulness. In fact, they've reveled in injustice, right? We just saw those oaths, that system that allowed people to get exploited. That's injustice. They taught things contrary to God's word. They persecuted Jesus and his disciples unjustly. And they've not practiced mercy. They didn't care for those who were under their spiritual care. The few deeds of mercy they performed were to get the applause of men, not because they cared about people or God. And they've certainly failed to be faithful to God by persecuting the Messiah. They have obsessed about the minutia of the law and missed the heart of God. And Jesus illustrates the absurdity of the situation with this stuff about animals. Under the Jewish dietary law, both the tiny gnat and the large camel were unclean. They were not to be eaten. So any liquid the Pharisees drank, they would strain to make sure they didn't eat any bugs. But Jesus says, you know, you're straining for gnats, but you swallowed a camel. You think your hyper-observance of the minutia of the law is protecting you from every little bit of defilement. But in fact, you've gone and done something far worse, far more corrupting. And because of this massive inconsistency, the Pharisees and the scribes again show themselves to be blind hypocrites. So woe is upon them. Next, Jesus says, look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Back in chapter 15, we saw the Pharisees were concerned about defilement. They thought sin was something contagious, transmitted by physical contact, which corrupted from the outside in. So whatever I touch outwardly corrupts me inwardly. And so they were very concerned about washing things they touched to keep them clean. But back in chapter 15, Jesus says this whole approach is wrong. Because he says in Matthew 15, 17, it's the heart that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Defilement's not about touching something unclean. The problem is we're already defiled inwardly because of our sinful nature. And that evil inner nature manifests itself in outward corrupt behavior. So what we need to stop being defiled is not more hand washing. What we need is a new heart. We need to be made new by God. We need to be cleansed within. Only then can our outward conduct ever be clean. But here Jesus says, hey Pharisees, you make a good show about protecting yourself from outward defilement, but it's vain because inwardly you are so defiled with greed and self-indulgence. It's just 
more hypocrisy. Worried about the outward show and neglecting what's inside. They need to be cleansed by repentant faith in Jesus. But because they refuse, woe to the Pharisees and scribes. Next, Jesus says, look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The law said, if you touched a dead body, you were ritually unclean. Now, we're not guilty of sin. This is not the Pharisees' view. But you couldn't go to the temple. Now, during the religious holidays, everybody came to Jerusalem so they could go to the temple. So they didn't want to become ritually unclean. And to help the pilgrims, they would whitewash the tombs. So they would stand out as a warning. Stay away. Right? But whitewashing the tombs would make them look beautiful. And Jesus here says, the Pharisees and scribes are like those tombs. Oh, they look good outwardly, don't they? They look righteous, but inwardly, it's only death. Because they don't know God. Because they haven't been made new. And so even though they're pretending to care about the law, they are lawless. They are filled with decay, awaiting judgment. And so there's a warning here. Stay away from false teachers like this. Not because, oh, touching them might make me guilty. No. Because if you've fallen behind them, they're going to lead you to ruin because they're spiritually blind. So woe is upon the Pharisees and scribes. Finally, this is the last one. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. The Pharisees and scribes knew Israel's history. They knew that in ancient times God had sent prophets to his people to speak the truth, who were rejected and persecuted and often murdered. And the Pharisees and scribes thought that they were so righteous. They were totally unlike their ancestors who had done those terrible things. So to tell themselves they were different, they built really nice monuments to the prophets and they said to themselves, well, if we had lived back then, we would not have done that. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 31. Thus, in this way, because you make this statement, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. The very fact that they are so deluded about their own spiritual condition that they cannot imagine they would have been guilty in former times shows that they were in the same spiritual position their ancestors were. So self-righteous, so blind, so presumptuous, they were right with God. They would not listen to anyone who told them otherwise, even if it was a prophet. Even if, it, like in Jesus' day, it was the Messiah himself. So Jesus says, you're just like the people who murdered the prophets. And now he derides them and he says, hey, continue on the trajectory you're on. Finish the job. Bring comprehensive condemnation upon yourselves by filling up the quantity of sin necessary to receive the worst imaginable judgment, not just by killing the prophets, but by killing the very Son of God. We'll skip verse 33 for a moment. Look at 34. 
He says, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Here, Jesus is not speaking in his humanity as much as in his deity. He sent so many prophets to his people. From even before there was an Israel, there was Abel who offered good testimony to God. He was murdered. And later he did send prophets to Israel. Elijah who was persecuted. Isaiah who was murdered. Jeremiah who was imprisoned. Amos who was mocked. And so forth down to Zechariah who was murdered in the temple. The religious leaders of Israel have so often rejected God's messengers and killed just so many of them. Just like now, they're planning to kill Jesus. And as the heirs to that tradition, immense woe is on the Pharisees and the scribes. But you say, okay, what does this woe entail? What will happen? Jesus says two things. First, look at verse 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? There will be eternal destruction for these leaders who have misled God's people and who will murder God's son. Their eternal fate is sealed. And not only are they going to face eternal catastrophe, they're going to bring catastrophe on themselves and their own followers in the short term in this world too. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The cumulative guilt for all of this persecution and murder of God's prophets, as well as the guilt for the murder of God's Son, is going to be redressed. Because God is going to bring catastrophe on Israel within one generation of when Jesus said these words. And we're going to look at that next week. I told you it was a long first point. And it's a bleak one. What should we take from this? Four things. First, We might be shocked that Jesus publicly condemns false teachers like this. We may say, well, this just seems so impolite. Should we ever do something like this? Yes, friends, we should. You know, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul names the names of false teachers. Philetus and Hymenaeus who were spreading heresy. Paul calls them out. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For the good of God's people. For the good of those who will be deceived. Friends, we need to clearly identify false teachers who are leading people to hell. This is appropriate and it is right to do, even today. Second, I want us to see that Jesus is a judge. He isn't just warning about sin here. He's actually entering a guilty verdict and sentencing people to hell and to catastrophe. And friends, it's necessary for us to think about Jesus as a judge. Because in John 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Friends, Jesus will judge every person who has ever lived, including you and me. And what do we learn about Jesus' judgment here? Well, Jesus' judgment is clear. He gives specific reasons for it. Jesus' judgment is fair. His analysis is accurate and true. Jesus' judgment is all-knowing. He judges not just our deeds, but our intent. And Jesus' judgment is fearsome as he sentences people here to the just penalty their sin deserves, death and hell. 
Friends, Hebrews 9.22 says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Each of us needs to know that, and we need to know that it is this Jesus who will judge us, and what this judgment looks like. Third, church leaders need to consider Jesus' warnings here especially, because many things in this chapter touch on leadership. Do we point those who follow us to the Jesus of the Bible, who is God and man, who has died and is risen, who is Savior and Lord, or do we shut the door to the kingdom? Do we practice what we preach? Do we burden people and not help them to shoulder the load? These are questions that leaders in the church must consider constantly. But fourth, I think we can all examine ourselves by some of the things the Pharisees are condemned for. Do we play word games to justify dishonesty? Do we excel at putting on a show on Sunday while allowing evil to fester in our hearts throughout the rest of the week? Do we care so much about micro-issues at the fringe of the Scripture, more than the weightier things the Bible tells us again and again? Friends, do we really follow and love Christ? Do we love God? Do we love others? Or do we imagine that somehow there's a separate track? Oh, I don't really need to come to Christ. Or I don't really need to love God and love other people. You know, I could just be super concerned about some comparatively trivial and minute issue over here. And God will be just so impressed with my diligence about that fringe issue. Friends, do not fool yourselves. God knows and sees all. And judgment is coming. And we must all face Jesus' evaluation as the Pharisees did. But we come now to our second point. As Jesus now contrasts these false religious leaders with his intention for his disciples. Let's go back to verse 8. Jesus has just called out the Pharisees for loving the place of honor at feasts and enjoying being called rabbi and people making a show about them. Now Jesus points his disciples in a different direction. They are not to be like that. They are not to relish the attention of people, not to glory in titles. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, but you... Disciples, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. This week was the, f- the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI. And as I watched the coverage, over and over again, people kept calling the Pope the Holy Father. Just as in many denominations, including Protestant denominations, Clergy call themselves father so-and-so. Friends, Jesus forbids that language here. That was language the Pharisees were using, hailing their own sages as fathers. But Jesus forbids this because he wants us to see that we only have one father who is supreme, who who is worthy of our honor and glory and unqualified obedience, and that is the Father in heaven. Now, some people have said, well, well, well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says he is the Corinthian church's father through the gospel. Paul and Peter sometimes talk about their converts as their children. Okay, that's not what Jesus is forbidding here. The apostles in those writings are talking about their own historical involvement with the foundation of a church or in helping people come to Christ. But they were not using that language of father and children to signal a paternal spiritual authority. They're not using that title to lord their authority over others or to get undue honor that should go to God alone, as many people do today. Similarly, Jesus here forbids his disciples from using the term rabbi. 
That was in use in the first century among the Pharisees. And today when we hear this term, we often equate it with the word teacher. But I think there's something more than just being a teacher when you call someone rabbi in the first century. The idea was the person you were talking to was spiritually enlightened, like a Jewish Buddha. That they had some spiritual connection with God that the rest of us mere mortals could never attain. And that we can benefit from their great connection only if we join ourselves to them. Jesus says that is not how his followers are to present themselves. Likewise, he forbids the use of the term instructor here, a Greek term that was used to speak of tutors or professors. What is Jesus getting at here? He is rejecting a culture the Pharisees and scribes had built around themselves, which said they had a unique relationship with God, a position of absolute superior spirituality and knowledge that nobody else could attain. And Jesus says, that's not how it's to be among my people. Friends, there is only one individual who has a unique, special connection to God that nobody can attain. And it isn't me, and it isn't Daniel, and it sure ain't the Pope. Friends, it's Jesus. Jesus stands alone, and the rest of us are just brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are equal. Now, sometimes people read this and say, well, then, I guess we don't need leaders in the church. We don't need elders. I know a church that tried that out. It didn't work out well for them. Because the same Jesus who gave this instruction stands behind the whole Bible. And in Titus 1, we read, Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That also is the word of Christ. And these elders, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, are to rule well over the church. There should be directional leaders in the local church. That's not what Jesus is forbidding here. What he is forbidding is the idea that those who have leadership roles in the church have some unique power or access the rest of us don't have. I've heard people set themselves up like this before. Think, oh, I'm, I'm an anointed teacher. Like they alone can authoritatively interpret scripture or get new revelation. Friends, that's just not how it is. 1 John 2, warning against false teachers like that says, the anointing you have received from him abides in you, and that's a plural you. God's anointing, his spirit, rests on every believer. We don't need some mystical guru to connect us to God because we have Christ and we have his spirit. Now again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have teachers in the church. Ephesians 4 says Christ has gifted the church with shepherds and teachers who are to speak the truth in love so that we grow up in every way. We do have elders and teachers. But I want you to understand that before God, we are simply your brothers. We are not your guru. Listen to me on this. I do not receive prophetic dreams or visions. I do not hear God's voice audibly. I do not infallibly interpret the scripture. The sermon does not come to me in a flash of divine inspiration. I have to pray and read and think and write and edit a lot. Just like you, I'm to pray and read the Bible and do the best I can to understand it and obey it. I trust myself to God's grace through faith because I'm fallible. I sin a lot. I'm sure at times I make mistakes when I handle the Bible. I try really hard not to. And yes, friends, the elders do have authority that comes from God, but we don't use it as tyrants. We use it as brothers simply pointing to you what Christ's authoritative word says. Because this is what Jesus says about his community. Look at verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Once more, Jesus returns to those great themes of chapters 18 through 20. 
greatness among his people. It's not about title. It's not about power. It's about service. That's true for all of us, including the leaders. Friends, in the end, we must not view the church as a place where I come to take. I come to get a good sermon, or I come to get child care for a few minutes, or I come to get the benefits of people praying for me. No, friends, in the end, we come to church to lovingly serve other people and to build them up as they build us up. In the end, our example is not the Pharisees, it's Christ, who says he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Friends, how are we doing with this? Are we looking for ways to exalt ourselves here? Do we crave recognition? Do we think we deserve titles? Do we want the applause of men? Be warned if that's you, friend. Jesus opposed the Pharisees, and he will oppose the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Who are we humbly serving at church today? Have we come to take, or have we come to give and serve? Who are you serving here this week? Who are you helping? What work are you doing to build up the brothers and sisters? Who are you praying for? Who are you meeting with and encouraging? Friends, let us display Christ's humility and not the self-glorification of the Pharisees. Let us have a right understanding of our equality before Christ and see Jesus alone as the unique one who connects us to God. But we're going to finish now with our last point in which Jesus addresses the unbelieving crowds who have been corrupted by the false religious leaders. Jesus said some hard things to the scribes and Pharisees, but now he's got some final hard words to say. Not to the religious leaders, but to those who followed them to the whole city of Jerusalem. Look down at verse 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Oh yes, the Pharisees were the heirs to the tradition of murdering the prophets. And indeed, they're about to murder God's own son. But Jesus doesn't just indict the Pharisees and scribes for that here. He indicts the whole city of Jerusalem. Because while the false religious leaders led in rejecting God's prophets, the people followed them. And they do so now again as it concerns Jesus. Oh yes, on Palm Sunday, there was much acclaiming Jesus, right? But who was it that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? It was the pilgrims who had traveled with Jesus from Galilee. But what was the response of the people in Jerusalem? Matthew 21.10 says, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? They weren't out there celebrating Jesus. They weren't excited that the long-awaited coming of the Messiah had come. They said, why should we be disturbed with something like prophetic fulfillment? What a terrible attitude. And it's not the first time we've seen this attitude in this book. Because back in chapter 2, when the wise men came to Jerusalem seeking the newborn Jesus, Matthew 2, 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem had the same attitude about the birth of Jesus. The murderous king Herod did. They are complicit with him in his crimes. And now we discover that years later, after all Jesus did in Galilee, after his triumphal entry, after he healed the disabled in the temple, after he won that great debate, and boy, the crowds loved it, because Mark 12 tells us the great throng heard him gladly in that debate. After all that, the crowds still won't accept him as the Messiah. They will not repent and believe in him. And within 72 hours of this, they would be standing out there screaming, crucify him! Crucify him! Jerusalem is guilty. 
And it's not because Jesus forsook them. Verse 37, he says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. John's gospel tells us Jesus came to Jerusalem many times. This is the only time we see a reference to those other visits in Matthew. But Jesus has come here many times. And he has so often lovingly and compassionately pleaded with people to turn from their sin and to trust him, desiring to gather them as his people, like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But they would not, because their own culture of historic unbelief and the corrupting influence of their false teachers has just so hardened their hearts. And so now Jesus tells them two things. Verse 38, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Judgment's coming. Desolation. That terrible fate that's going to befall Jerusalem that we're going to talk about next week. In verse 39, he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people shouted on Palm Sunday, right? Psalm 118. But now that cry isn't being heard anymore. Nobody's taking it up in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, until you do, you won't see me again. Now, the point here is not that Jesus is going to disappear. The point is, his public ministry is now over. He isn't going to appeal to the crowds anymore. He isn't going to teach him anymore. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Now, he's going to teach his disciples exclusively until the cross. But, you know, even as Jesus turns away from Jerusalem in sorrow, there's still a prospect of hope here. Because he indicates that one day there will be a time when the Jews honor him as the one who has come in the name of the Lord. This is something Paul talks about in Romans 11.25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. In the future there will be a mass conversion of Jews to faith in Jesus. In the future they will take up the cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this prophecy will stand fulfilled. But friends, that day has not yet come. And it certainly hadn't come 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And so now Jesus' public ministry ends. Jerusalem has made its choice and judgment will fall. To conclude today, I want to say this. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus did that to win a people for his own possession. Just as in Jerusalem back then, today Jesus is still seeking to gather people as a mother hen gathers her chicks. You know, in this church we often teach about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and that's absolutely true. But I want to tell you there is also human responsibility. Paul says in Acts 17.30, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. We need to turn away from our old lives of sin. We need to turn to Jesus in faith. We need to believe that he is truly God and truly man, that he has died for our sins, that he has risen again. We need to follow him and entrust our destinies to him. And if today we say no, 
If we say, I will not be gathered to Jesus because I believe some false teaching or philosophy or religion or because I like my sin too much to give it to Jesus or because you say, I am my own person. I don't need a ruler. I don't need a Lord. I don't need a Savior. I warn you. You're in the same boat as the Pharisees of old and you will surely be condemned just as they were if you do not turn. Friend, turn to Jesus and live. And today, if we have turned to Jesus, may we not follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees. May we not be marked by hypocrisy and spiritual blindness. May we not be filled with this desire to exalt ourselves. May we humbly serve and love one another and submit to Jesus and his word.